Welcome back to Curious Combinations and Everything's Unoriginal Podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm covering Stranger Things Season 4, Episode 3. With Episode 3 comes the reintroduction of a character I thought we were not going to see again, that being Dr. Owens, who I fully forgot existed until he showed up on the screen. The last time he played any significant role in the plot was in Season 2, way back in October of 2017, which was almost five full years ago at this point. Now, in the aftermath of Starcourt last season, he helped establish Elle with Joyce's family in California, but that just means he's the government's final lead on where to find Elle, providing that she's still alive in spite of his claim otherwise. Because just like we're doing jocks and nerds for some damn reason, we're now doing scientists versus soldiers as well, and I am not here for either of those stupid ideas. They are very 80s, yes, but they're not exactly the fun nostalgia that this series does so well. They're just pervasive, persistent cliches in our storytelling even now, and they're not even really 80s throwbacks because they never actually went away. I am just so sick of tough guys versus smart guys and or popular guys versus unpopular guys in any and all iterations. But Dr. Owens... I don't hate seeing him return to the story, especially when it seems that he's going to play an interesting and genuinely helpful role in this season, though I'm not sure I fully buy what he's trying to sell L. That's later, though. For now, we've got opening credits to sit through, and I will note that Matthew Modine is still in them, which strikes me as ominous. And then we're at the skate rink, where Angela is milking her injury for all it is worth. Where does it hurt, sweetie? Gag me. What a shitfuck paramedic. And what the fuck are Mike and Will doing, letting Elle sit by herself and despair while they just watch Angela pretend she's been murdered? Like, Argyle is the one who has to try to get through to Elle, and he's awful at it because he's high out of his mind, but not as awful and high as Jonathan is, and he has been so fucking useless so far this season that he might as well not be here. At Joyce's place, no one else is helping Elle out either. Murray is there, and he and Joyce are being suspicious as fuck. If these kids don't think that Murray and Joyce are nailing each other, then I'm the Queen of England. Murray, of course, can see that Jonathan is high, but that's not especially helpful, nor is the way that Joyce doesn't realize why the three youngest children aren't speaking while Murray and Argyle prattle on. Mike has this shitty remark about what happened with Angela that makes Elle storm away from the table, which means that Joyce finally does notice the weird vibe, but it's still not much. Joyce doesn't go after her to try to talk to her, and Mike doesn't either. Not until Elle has had a whole night to stew in her own self-loathing and drown in her own despair. But again, on the Joyce shipping front, I much prefer Murray as the father figure of this little family unit than Hop. Hop is toxic masculinity all the way down, but Murray is adorable and caring and secure in his own identity. And he cooks, too. That's always a plus. Now, though, it's Vecna time. I don't know where exactly he is or what exactly he's doing, but I do find the developments in this episode rather interesting. As he hangs out there in the center of his weird little tentacle web, looking like he's just been plugged into some kind of a wacky sci-fi supercomputer or something, I am reminded of the tunnels that permeated the town back in season two. Because though Vecna appears to be in the upside down, when he plugs himself into this thing, whatever it is, it seems to act like some kind of a link to the pseudoscience and literal interpretation of Young's collective unconsciousness. He appears to be using this thing to travel through the minds of all the residents of Hawkins, and he's hunting people with unresolved, lingering trauma. But diction, I fear, is very important here. I have chosen the word hunting, but I fear that's not going to prove particularly accurate. Hunting implies malice, or if not that, then selfishness. To hunt someone or something is to track them down for violence and self-gain, and while I don't really mean that in a judgmental way, it is a harsh and judgmental word. 
But I don't know if we're supposed to be seeing Vecna in that light. A significant part of me wonders if that's the very reason his murders are so grotesque. If the Duffers are using this gruesome violence to distract from the motivation behind the kills. Because there's something important, I think, about the way that Vecna talks to his victims. What did he say to Chrissy? It's time for your suffering to end. What did he say to Fred? I want you to join me. That is a far cry from the voiceless, animalistic, unambiguously malicious monsters of previous seasons. There is real, genuine motivation behind what Vecna is doing here, and something about the way his lines are being written, about the way the people he's going after are being written, a part of me seriously wonders if Vecna thinks his murders are actually mercy kills of some kind, that he thinks maybe ending Chrissy's suffering through death is a benevolent act, and that Fred joining him in some sense is in Fred's best interest. And I shudder to think what he means when he says join. All I can see in my mind's eye are those awful flesh piles from the last season, and I don't really want to see those again. Thank you very much. Now, from Vecna, we go to Lucas. The basketball crew are, quote, gearing up for the hunt. Jason, or whatever his name is, his insistence that he's not going to hurt anyone is paper thin even before he starts hitting people and threatening to break their bones, and I am frightened for Lucas's well-being and horrified that he kept waiting for some golden opportunity to get away from them. Like, every second that you are complicit in this makes things worse for you in the long run, man. If you just ditch them now, they're probably going to forget about you. But if you go with them and then appear to change sides? Honey, they're coming for you next. Eddie might be the main target right now, but let's not miss the in-group, out-group mob mentality that's developing here. This is the 80s. Your friends are accused of committing ritual murders, and you are a black boy in small-town Indiana. These are not sane people. This is not a safe situation, and you are in danger. Get out of there! So, as Steve and company try to convince Eddie that they've got this whole thing handled, or that they will eventually, the police arrive in full force to the site of Fred's mangled corpse. What the fallout of this is going to be, I don't know. As far as I'm aware, there's nothing to connect Eddie and Fred at all. But when has that ever stopped a mob, or the cops, or a good old satanic panic? If the local PD has decided that Eddie killed Chrissy, 99 times out of 100, Eddie is going to prison for Chrissy and Fred's murders, even if that doesn't make any fucking sense. But I suppose we'll see what the Duffers do. Back in California, Mike and Elle have a chat, in spite of Jonathan being somehow even less emotionally aware and empathetic than Mike, and trying to pressure them into going to a movie or something, as if there's not this terrible tension in the house. Mike, bless him, is trying to make up for yesterday in his awkward teen way. It's far from a great attempt at communication, but any attempt at compassionate understanding communication is honestly kind of impressive, coming from this supposedly 14-year-old boy. The bar is in hell, and he's clearing it. He doesn't say the right things here, far from it, but the spirit is there, and that's at least appreciated. Still, though, there's a strange tension between Mike and Elle that I was not expecting. We hear for the first time that Mike has been making Elle feel unloved in their relationship. Elle has been exceptionally lonely lately, and Mike has been signing his letters from instead of love Mike, and when she tearfully confronts him, he does not go for the easy fix. He doesn't tell her that he loves her, and I'm not sure I understand why. What does the word mean to him right now that prompts him to withhold it from her? Have we ever heard him say it to her before? I honestly can't recall, but Elle does say that she thinks he doesn't love her, quote, anymore. I guess I'm just very confused by Mike's emotions this season in general. He's not giving Elle what she needs, he's not giving Will what he needs, and when he's confronted over both, he insists that Elle and Will are both the ones at fault. Will isn't making enough effort, and Elle is just being ridiculous. But it sounds more like the problem is Mike. 
Because if your partner tells you in good faith that they are in crisis and you are not making them feel loved, it's literally your job as their partner to fix that or to let the relationship go. But let's forget that for a moment because Elle's bad day is about to jump from frying pan level to full-blown fire. The cops are at the door and they're not interested in acting like people instead of pigs and they're aggressively dragging this 14-year-old girl down to the station while she is home alone with no parents. And of course, they interrogate her. They try to gaslight her and manipulate her and trick her, in fact, as cops are wont to do, without providing her a lawyer. Why wouldn't they, though? Joyce isn't there to advocate for her, Hopper isn't there to advocate for her, and probably never told her to watch out for cops, and Jonathan and Will aren't allowed in to see her, and I guarantee that Elle doesn't actually understand her Miranda rights. I guarantee that Joyce, being a white woman in the 80s, has not given Elle the never-talk-to-cops-under-any-circumstances-because-cops-are-not-your-friends speech that every child desperately needs to internalize. And no, I'm not joking. Do not talk to the cops without a lawyer. Period. The justice system is a myth in America. We have a prison system. L is going through the same thing that Eddie will if the Hawkins PD finds him. Once the police have decided that you did something, the evidence is not going to matter. It might matter once you've made it to your actual trial, but before then, it does not. And if you're especially unlucky, it's not going to matter once you get to trial either. They want bodies in prison beds. They don't care about justice rant over for now. In Russia, we see Hopper as he prepares for his hopeful extraction, which puts a damper on my mostly joking what-if-he-dies-before-they-save-him idea. Honestly, I'm excruciatingly bored by these Hopper scenes. I get that we have to give David Harbour something to do this season, but this plotline is seriously feeling just like filler at this point. Hopefully something interesting will happen with it soon. Now, at the trailer park, Nancy meets up with Robin, Dustin, Steve, and Max to catch up and exchange notes on their theories about the dead. They theorize that maybe Chrissy might have said something to the school counselor that could help them, and so we, of course, get one of those typical protagonist-doesn't-want-to-open-up-to-a-shrink-until-they-have-to-fake-it-in-a-bid-to-get-information-on-another-patient scenes. Looking at you, supernatural. Nancy, though, heads off to follow her own lead, but not without Steve volunteering to go with her for protection. I wasn't mad about the prospect, I'll admit, but I think I like what we got even better. Steve can't go with Nancy because Steve and Nancy are the only two legally allowed to drive, so Robin goes with Nancy instead. And there's a team-up that I want more of. I don't see, like, let's be best friends in their future, and I don't even think that Robin is going to be particularly successful in making Nancy more interesting than she's been these past few seasons. But it's fun, and pretty funny, to explore their dynamic, and it provides the show with an opportunity to make text of the subtext that is fluttering around Nancy and Steve. Honestly, I had thought that I would be pissed if we retreaded this old territory, but to be honest, Nancy and Jonathan have proven to be a pretty shit couple, and so if the show is too chicken shit to go full throuple with these three, then I will entertain the idea of circling back around to Stancy. But if Nancy does want to date Steve again, she sure as fuck better become Robin's best friend really quick. In the upside-down version of a Victorian-looking house that we will see again later, Vecna rifles through the town's trauma. Some people are abusing alcohol, others are being bullied, others sick, others abused. Among them is the other black member of the basketball team, which I fear means that he's not long for this world, though I admit I am not as scared for him as I am for Lucas, who doubles down on aligning himself with the basketballers instead of the D&D players. In fact, he outright denies knowing Eddie's band when they ask him to stand up for them. And, in what I think is the single worst moment I've ever seen from Lucas, he claims that Eddie's friends tried to recruit him for their cult. Exact words, 
Cult was his word choice, with all the weight and violent association that that word implies. It's a truly shameful moment. And Lucas doesn't even have to be here. He chose to be a part of this in this moment. The safest, smartest thing to do would have been to get the hell out of Dodge before they got in the car to come here. But Lucas is still sticking around and staying silent even when Jason threatens to break one of the nerd's hands if he doesn't snitch on Eddie. And like, that is another opportunity gone by. Say something when the violence starts. You don't even have to be condemning it outright. You just have to say something about being worried that this will look bad for you specifically if you get caught or something. And then get gone. Let them think you're a coward. Convince them that you're supporting them from afar. Anything. Who cares what you have to tell them? Just get away from them without actively helping them hurt people. The longer you are near these lunatics, the more risk you are taking onto yourself. The more danger you are in, the more damage you specifically might accidentally do, and the more they might be able to pin on you if they decide to turn on you in the future. And going so far as to claim that they were recruiting you to a cult? Jesus Christ, Lucas. And to think I was praising your maturity just two episodes ago. Next, at the library, Nancy and Robin are on the case. If Nancy is Nancy Drew here, I think that makes Robin George. Now all we need is a Bess, I suppose, and if she weren't years dead at this point, I would nominate Barb. Barb is Bess, Robin is George, Nancy is, of course, Nancy Drew. It's all very fun. I can see it. Anyway, at the counselor's house, Dustin confirms that Robin is not out to anyone but Steve, and Max talks to the counselor. There's a shot of a clock in the counselor's house that makes me wonder if she could be concretely connected to Vecna in some way, though I think it's more likely that the ticking clock here is simply meant to be a further hint that Vecna is specifically targeting people struggling with their mental health. In any case, Max doesn't open up any more than before, but she does steal the counselor's keys. At Dustin's house, Lucas sneaks in while the basketballers are distracted and contacts Dustin on the radio. He finds out where Eddie is, and he finds out that Dustin doesn't believe Eddie is guilty. The basketballers confront him, and he tells them that he now knows where Eddie is hiding. He agrees to lead the way, and it is temporarily unclear whether he's going to tell them the truth or come up with a lie. Somewhere in the Californian desert, Elle is being transported to a juvenile facility when the cops are overtaken by a series of cars unmistakable as some flavor of feds. Elle, fearing that these people are more going to be in the vein of Brenner than of Owens, panics and flees. Without her powers, though, she's of course easily caught within seconds, so thank goodness it's Owen who gets out of the car, and not someone worse. Now back at the library, Robin tracks down the info that Nancy is looking for. It shows up not in a reputable paper, but in a Weekly World News-style tabloid, and the story that it tells is wild and a bit out of step with typical Hawkins fare. According to Victor Creel, his family died at the hands of a demon haunting his house, a house that one should immediately recognize as the one Vecna is using as his upside-down base of operations. I assume, of course, that Vecna isn't really a demon in the religious sense, but this does confirm that there's a bit of a retcon going on here. It's always been assumed in the past, and insisted upon by the military in this very episode, that L was the initial point of connection between the Upside Down and Hawkins. But L was born sometime in the 70s, which means there's no way she could possibly have anything to do with whatever Vecna and or Creel were getting up to way back in the 50s. But if the overlap between the Upside Down and Hawkins predates L's powers, what does that mean for our story, our characters, and the universe of Stranger Things itself? 
Meanwhile, Dustin, Steve, and Max are breaking into the school to get a look at Mrs. Kelly's confidential patient files. Max finds Chrissy's folder and Fred's folder and sits down to read, and finds to her horror that the only commonality between Fred and Chrissy is their mental health symptoms. Unresolved trauma, ongoing nightmares, recurrent headaches, everything that Max herself is suffering. And just as she realizes this, I fear that her time runs out. But before we get there, we have a little bit more plot left. Lucas leads the basketball team into the woods. It is clear now that he lied about where Eddie is hiding, and he's actually intending to ditch the team at Hopper's empty cabin in the woods. I hope that he can run fast enough to get back to safety before they realize what he's up to, chase him down, and beat his ass for tricking them. And then there's Elle. Poor baby Elle. Bless Dr. Owens for seeming like a genuinely good guy throughout all of this, and let me emphasize how devastated I will be if this turns out to be false. Now, I'm not thrilled by the implication that this show is going to be brushing what happened with Angela under the rug. I really thought we were going to finally deal with the implications of Elle's violently teaching bullies a lesson attitude, but apparently not. Instead, Dr. Owens is offering to take her away from the California plotline. More importantly, he's offering her the possibility of regaining the powers she's been longing to recover since she lost them last season. But she will have to go with him right now. Hawkins is in immediate danger, and there is no time to say goodbye to any of her California friends. Nor is there any guarantee that she will ever see them again. But what choice does she really have? She clearly fears that Mike won't love her unless she's a superhero. So you can bet your ass she's going to do whatever Dr. Owens tells her to do. She's going to get those powers back, because to her, those powers are her worth in the world. They are her confidence, her security. They are the one weapon that she feels she has. She's getting them back, and I dread to think what she will have to endure to do that. And as for Max, she gets the final note of the episode. She is hallucinating, the grandfather clock is ticking down to some awful deadline, and Vecna is calling out her name. Now, I don't think that this show has the nerve to kill any of the kids, not in this penultimate season at least, but if they're going to knock off anyone, I would wager that the characters who were not part of the cast right from the beginning, anyone who hasn't been part of this since season one, those are the characters most likely to go. So, with all of that said, I think I find this episode more enjoyable than the previous one solely from the fact that I think I'm starting to get a better handle on where exactly they're trying to go with this story. They very specifically seem to be trying to delve into mental health themes. They're trying to use Max's conflict and trauma over the death of Billy as a window through which to look at trauma in general. And I don't know how successful they're going to be with that idea in the long run, but that does seem to be what they're trying to do. I'm still worried about what exactly it is that they're doing with Fekna. Again, I usually hate retconning. While it can be done well, it often isn't, and so I look at all hints of retconning with suspicion until my trust is won. I have hopes, of course, that Stranger Things is going to be able to pull this off, but who knows. In any case, there are four episodes left in this first chunk of the season, and with the next episode being our halfway point, I don't know exactly how much I should be preparing myself to be an emotional wreck really soon. I don't think I really have to prepare myself to see Max die, but from what we've seen of Chrissy and Fred, once the hallucinations start, you probably only have hours left, or maybe a few days at the most. And Max, she's already hearing Vecna call her name, so I wouldn't be surprised if when we next see her, she is being attacked. And I cannot imagine right now how she's going to get out of that. 
My only suspicion at this point in the story is that perhaps she's going to be able to fight back in some capacity by virtue of knowing what's going on. Some vague idea of how knowing the situation you're in empowers you to the point where you can fight back, perhaps? But to be honest, I have no clue how one would ever even begin going about fighting something like Vecna. He's operating kind of as a metaphor for mental illness or maybe even suicidal ideation, I think that's definitely safe to say, but in a literal sense, I don't know if he is truly pulling people's minds into the upside down or maybe he is just infiltrating people's minds. I don't know what precisely it is that he's doing to people, but at the very least, I suppose it's clear that he's controlling their perception of the world, and he's definitely destroying his victims' bodies in the most gruesome of fashions. And to that point, I still only have vague notions of what it is that he wants, or why he's doing this. I have no idea where he comes from, what he's trying to achieve, and honestly, woefully little idea of what is going on at all. But I am definitely gaining optimism in terms of where the story seems to be going, and I am absolutely being murdered by forcing myself to watch one episode per day instead of binging them all. Right now, if you don't know, what I do is that I am watching an episode per day, recording my reactions, and then watching the episode again to write my script for the podcast, then sitting down to record the podcast. And that's a day, that's a full day right there, that is all the free time I have. And so I truly cannot watch more than one episode of this per day, and I'm sure you can imagine how desperately I wish that weren't true. I just want to go ahead and binge this. I love this show, and I love these characters so much, and honestly, as long as I don't feel completely betrayed by whatever happens this season, I'm pretty sure a lukewarm reception is the absolute worst possible outcome of my relationship with this season. And like I said, at this point, I'm moving into genuinely optimistic, I think I'm gonna love this territory. So, I'm going to be sitting down tomorrow morning to watch episode 4, and for honesty's sake, I will say that I've gotten the vague spoiler that something really pivotal and or emotional happens in the next episode. I don't know if that big thing is a good thing or a bad thing. Maybe it's something really epic or something really devastating or something else, but I do assume at this point that whatever it is, it's got something to do with what's going to happen to Max, given how episode 3 ended. Now, if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please consider giving the show a rating or a review or even a shout out on social media. And if you are interested in my reaction videos, those are available on a weekly basis to $5 patrons or available immediately as soon as they're recorded to $10 patrons. While $1 patrons get access to polls helping me decide what it is that I'm going to be watching in the future. So check out those tiers if you're interested. If you're not interested in the Patreon, no harm, no foul. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you will join me again next week for my next episode of Stranger Things coverage. And here is hoping that I don't have to do the whole episode through tears because something horrible has happened to Max. I get that we have to give David Harbour... David? Did I say David?